Good evening and welcome, friends, to Voices of the Sacred Feminine, whether you're across town or across the globe. I'm your host, Karen Tate, voted one of the most influential women of God spirituality, in part because of this show, Voices of the Sacred Feminine. Thank you so much for your support and for your listener loyalty. Each one of you is an integral part of the Voices of the Sacred Feminine family from wherever you're listening from. That said, uh, this is if this is the first time you're listening and you like what you hear and want to stay in the loop, please remember to hit the follow button so you know who my guest is each week. That cut opening tonight's show is called Awaken by Alea Deo, one of my most cherished wishes that the masses would awaken and evolve into a world of partnership where the majority recognizes the importance of being in healthy and right relation to each other. And I want to thank you for your patience uh, this evening. Uh, we didn't look like we were going to even get on the air. They were having a technical glitch, uh, but at the last moment, literally in the last minute, uh, things uh, straighten themselves out, and it looks like the show will be on the air. Uh, I see Carol is waiting on the switchboard, uh, and we will get to her in just uh, a couple minutes. Uh, and, yes, tonight on the calendar are Carol Christ and Matthew Fox. Uh, Carol uh, has been on the show before during our Four Mothers and Way Shower series. Uh, you should go to the archives and uh, look for that. And uh, I met her in person when my nonprofit, uh, the Isis Ancient Culture Society, sponsored a talk of Carol's here in L.A., and it will be good uh, to reconnect. Uh, she is calling in from Greece, where it is the wee hours of the morning, and we all thank her, especially me, uh, for staying up late, uh, for setting her alarm uh, to be able to chat with us to, uh, this evening here in Los Angeles. Uh, we're going to discuss the goddess and the joy of life in ancient Crete. Uh, we'll delve into new research on matriarchies. Uh, we'll talk about the difference from patriarchies. Uh, Carol is going to define what she means when she says love is free in matriarchal societies. We'll chat about Crete being a gift-giving society, uh, also about ancient rituals in Crete. We'll redefine patriarchal myths and discuss the imminental turn in feminist theologies. So we have a lot to get to. And then crossing a threshold into the second half of the show, returning uh, to us is Matthew Fox, uh, author of over 30 books, including The Hidden Spirituality of Men, Christian Mystics, and most recently, Meister Eckhart. Uh, Matthew, a preeminent scholar and popularizer of Western mysticism, well, he became an Episcopal priest after being excommunicated from the Catholic Church by Cardinal Ratzinger, who later became Pope Benedict XVI. Uh, for such crazy ideas as embracing earth-based spirituality and recognizing the sacred feminine, among other things, I'm sure, but that was part of it. Uh, Matthew is going to discuss uh, Meister Eckhart, who lived from uh, 1260 to 1329, uh, and he has a book out uh, in, uh, in, in the name of Meister Eckhart with a subtitle, A Mystic Warrior for Our Times whose thinking and preaching was in alignment with the women's group we've discussed here before called the Begins or Begines, and the feminist and poet Adrian Rich. But first, uh, a few housekeeping tidbits, especially for the new listeners. 
Uh, I have to tell you, my publisher keeps telling me I've got to do it. Uh, my new book is out. I hope you'll go to my website at uh, KarenTate.com and uh, place an order for Goddess Calling, Inspirational Messages and Meditations of Sacred Feminine Liberation Theology, or get it perhaps from your local bookseller. You know, Amazon is also a place you can go, but, you know, it's putting most booksellers out of business, and we have to be aware of that. Buy there only if you have no other options. Uh, Goddess Calling is for individuals or group inspiration. It uh, helps connect the dots between the importance of goddess spirituality, politics, and social issues of the day. And you know what makes me feel so good to actually get your email saying, Karen, I can't put the book down. Um, you tell me it's inspiring and, uh, and it's uplifting you. Well, that was the idea, and I'm glad to know it has hit the mark. So thanks for the feedback. Uh, your kind words, as always, are surely gas in my tank. And in case you didn't hear, it's been endorsed by Jean Houston. Barbara Walker, Selena Fox, Z Budapest, and a number of other names you will surely recognize. Uh, check out the reviews on my website or at Goodreads or Amazon. And here is just uh, a snippet, just a tiny little snippet of what scholar of classical studies, Harita Mani uh, of Greece, uh, says about Goddess Calling. She says, sometimes a touch of inspiration is just what we need to transform our mundane reality and infuse us with the energy of the sacred. Karen Tate's new book, Goddess Calling, does precisely that and a lot more. Going through its almost 200 pages was a powerful and uplifting experience. I felt profoundly touched by the thoughtful and empowering views in this book. It calls out to everyone supporting the ideals of the sacred feminine to come out and make a difference in the world. In Karen's own words, it's time to find our sacred war and wage peace. Um, and, you know, with that said, uh, i got to start mentioning as well um, that uh, coming out in November uh, is, uh, is my fourth book, this time an anthology based on the radio show, this radio show right here. Uh, the title of the book is uh, almost the same as the show. The title is Voices of the Sacred Feminine, Conversations to Reshape the World. Contributors include Noam Chomsky, Phyllis Chesler, Rianne Eisler, Jean Shinoda Bolin, Laura Flanders of Grit TV, Gloria Felt of Planned Parenthood, Matthew Fox, Father Roy Bourgeois, Charlene Spretnak, Barbara Walker, Starhawk, and other wonderful top-tier guests you have loved hearing from here on the show. Back cover endorsements include high praise from Barbara Marks Hubbard, scholar Karen Rawls, and beloved foremother Ann Baring. I'll tell you more about that as the publication date gets closer and you can pre-order it. But save a space on your bookshelf for both, both books, Goddess Calling and Voices of the Sacred Feminine. Both will make great holiday gifts, and oh God, the holidays will be here before we know it. Okay, so with those obligations out of the way, let's get to some uh, social activism and an opportunity for you, my dear listeners, to participate here on the show. I want to tell you about something uh, that's uh, going on here, and then we're going to uh, jump in and get to Carol Christ. Uh, last week, I announced a new segment I'm doing, and I want to be sure you heard. Uh, for my What's the Buzz segment, when I talk about the bees in my bonnet, well, I want to know about the bees in yours. 
I want you to participate. I'd love to hear from you. Email me a short paragraph, short paragraph, and let me know how decisions being made or not being made by politicians or the Supreme Court are affecting your life. Have you experienced a state-mandated vaginal probe? Have you been denied the right to vote or contraception? How would you have been affected if the bill Elizabeth Warren wanted to get passed for student loans but was rejected by Republicans? How would that have helped you? I think you get the idea. Let's take this to the personal level, show how policies that are anti-woman, anti-worker, anti-gay, anti-science, anti-immigrant, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, how do they affect you? Uh, or if you're a Hobby Lobby employee, let me hear from you. Or if you just have to vent and have a comment about any recent headlines, you have a voice here on Voices of the Sacred Feminine. And we want to hear good things too, though, okay, guys and gals out there. So send me those stories as well or things to chew on because we might not know exactly how we feel and we might need to bounce things around and examine the issues more closely. Uh, everything isn't black and white. Lots of things are gray. So send me your comments and thoughts. Maybe we'll start opening the chat room if there's interest and uh, send me inspirational things as well. Be fearless. Find your sacred drawer. Remember, you are the cognitive minority. We are shifting the paradigm here on Voices of the Sacred Feminine together in partnership. Okay, well... Now it is time for Carol. Carol, I sure hope that's you showing up on my on my um, switchboard there. Is is it? Yes, that's me. Say, oh, thank you, thank you for um, hanging in there with me tonight. I know you had to set the alarm clock, and I apologize for Blog Talk's uh, technical difficulties. It was, uh, you know, pretty much uh, beyond my, uh, you know, beyond my control. So uh, thank you so much for, uh, you know. Not just going back to sleep tonight. <laughs> <laughs> no problem. It's nice to be uh, talking to you again. Okay. All right. So um, our topic tonight uh, was the goddess and the joy of ancient Greece. And uh, uh, I mentioned a few of the things that uh, you wanted to chat about. Um, where, uh, where do you think is a good place to start, Carol? Um, well, uh, you've made so many announcements. I wonder if um, I could start by announcing my website. Sure, um, absolutely. Please that, do. Uh, we were talking. We're going to be talking about the goddess and the joy of life in ancient Crete, and I'm leading uh, goddess pilgrimage to Crete this fall and next year. Um, and our website is www.goddessariadne.org. That's G-O-D-D-E-S-S-A-R-I-A-D-N-E. Dot org. Um, okay. So, um, and you have a Facebook page well, the, too, the don't you? The culture of ancient Crete. So, I'm sorry. Go ahead. Ask me. Uh, you have a Facebook <laughs> page as well, don't you? Yes, we do. Mm-hmm. Goddess pilgrimage to Crete with Carol Christ. Okay. And uh, so, why did you choose the title for tonight to uh, show the goddess and joy of life uh, for your interview? Uh, because I think the uh, culture of ancient Crete is very much a culture that celebrates the joy of life um, in the ancient Minoan religion, as it's called, although I prefer to call it the ancient religion or the Ariadnean religion, because Minos was a king who maybe even didn't exist um, and certainly didn't exist in ancient Crete. Um, this, the culture of ancient Crete um, was very much a culture that celebrated the joy of life, and they... Um, 
weren't looking, um, you know, to go to heaven or anything after death. They were celebrating the gift of life, which comes to us from the source of life, also called the Great Mother and uh, the Goddess. And um, for them, uh, the most I would say for them, um, the most important thing was to en- to enjoy life, to see that there is that joy of life in everything. In some of their um, pitchers, which they used for pouring libations and also for collecting water, um, they had the uh, duck head or the bird head um, in the spout, and the little eyes right next to the spout and the the beak or the duck bill um, facing upwards, as if a little bird does when it's when it drinks. It you know dips down, gets the water, and then it puts its head back, and they really look like they're smiling. And there's a really lovely goddess figurine figure that's also a pitcher, and it's a woman holding um, a pitcher. So probably it has to do with collecting water at the spring, and it's in the shape of a turtle with a very long neck. And in Crete, um, when we're there, we see these little turtles in the uh, water sources, and um, they're very, very curious. And when we come up to them, they come up to us. And they aren't really looking for bread or anything like that. They're just like, oh, hi. <laughs> and they, they swim <laughs> up and they go. They put their head out of the water and they look at you and they catch your eye. And then after a minute or so, they go, oh, I'm scared. And they jump down. <laughs> and then they come back up again a little bit later. And I think that for the Minoans, this, this was really the way they saw life, that everything has a joy of life. Everything has a curiosity about everything else. And for them, the most important thing was to express and experience that joy and share it with others. Well, you know, you can call me a conspiracy theorist, but, you know, I think by design, um, we are not taught to look for our quality of life, uh, the joy of life, you know, um, and and you can, you know, disagree with me uh, and, and feel free to do so. But, you know, I think when you see how capitalism, colonialism, Christianity, you know, how all of that works together to um, exploit, to dominate, to oppress. Uh, you know, if we had a, you know, if, if our spirituality was telling us to look for joy rather than sacrifice, you know, to look for the quality of life, um, you know, I, I don't, I, I, I don't think, um, you know, we would, we would be quite the, the, you know, hamsters on the wheel that we are, you know. I think more people would be saying, you know what, um, I'm sick and tired of this. This isn't what uh, we were put here to do. Um, I, I just wonder if you have any thoughts on that. Yes, I think, you know, certainly we've been taught that this life is a veil of tears through Christianity and, you know, we'll suffer and then, you know, we'll get rewarded in the end. Um, a lot of people don't believe that anymore. Many people still do, but for people who don't believe that anymore, I think we still have, through capitalism, as you said, um, a work ethic, and we think that, you know, we have to work hard, and, um, you know, we're working so hard trying to get ahead, trying to get money, trying to um, get more things. Um, and, of course, for people who are who are poor, I mean, money is really important, but for many people who have a lot of money, um, we're just working to get more money, and we're not really enjoying we're not really enjoying the life that we have. And right, there's so many right. things that are easy to enjoy, such as the turtles in the pond. But first of all, you have to get out into nature to see them. Um, yeah. You have to take time off work and have time off work. And I think in our culture, um, one of the worst things that's happened in the last 
you know, 30 years or so or more is the increasing work hours that everyone is expected to work. Over yeah. here in Europe where I live, um, people expect a six-week vacation every year. And um, in America, if you get your two weeks and then your, your few of your holidays, uh, that's all you get. Right. I remember when my when I was young, my dad always had a two-week vacation, and he never really relaxed until the last few days, <laughs> and then he had to yeah. go back to work. So. Yeah, by the time, you know, you unwind, it's time to go back. And, and you know, and, and I think technology is a double-edged sword, too. Um, my husband and I were actually invited to dinner by a friend recently, and, uh, you know, I have, to t- I have to say half the time he sat on his phone. You know, we would be in the middle of a conversation, and he's, you know, flipping his phone, and I'm thinking to myself, you know, where are the social graces? Where is the importance of just communicating to one, you know, with one another, eyeball to eyeball, and sharing mm-hmm. each other's company? I think even that's disintegrating. I think so too. And you know, it is supposedly on media you're connecting to people, but connecting to people in the flesh and the real in real life is much more important. True. And I mean, on places like Facebook, people don't even have to use their real name. And I think they use that anonymity uh, to, you know, maybe express themselves in ugly ways that they wouldn't have the nerve to say or, you know, if they were looking at you face to face, you know. Um, So Mm -hmm. there's that, too, I guess. Um, Well, you know, uh, in some of the information you sent me about what we're going to chat about tonight, uh, it said that uh, you said there's new research on matriarchies by um, Heidi Gartner-Abendroth, who's been here on the show, Um, and and, uh, she and her colleague uh, changed your understanding of ancient Crete. Uh, Did you want to speak about that a bit? Uh, well, I think what um, her book did for me was really provide um, a framework for understanding um, the social structure um, that I believe probably was um, um, evident in ancient Crete. And um, she calls it matriarchy. And um, you know, before we start talking about that, of course, as soon as the word matriarchy comes up, uh, most people say, "Oh no, um, not the opposite of patriarchy." And the same people that say, oh, no, let's not go to the opposite of patriarchy, they often aren't even criticizing patriarchy. <laughs> but mm-hmm. as soon as the word matriarchy comes up, what comes into their mind is that women must be oppressing men, they must be enslaving men, they might be raping men, they might be making men go to war, and things, I mean, they might be going to war against men and things like that. Um, actually, the kind of fear that people have and revulsion that they have towards matriarchy ought to be directed towards patriarchy. And we yeah, because be, it's, um, it's a reality, not just a, uh, something we, we're, and, you know, we're, we're theorizing about. Right. And matriarchy um, isn't the opposite of patriarchy. Uh, matriarchy um, isn't a female-dominating society. It's actually a sharing or partnership society. And um, Heidi defines it as a society in which the mothers are the principal or the first. Um, it's a society organized in, around the mother principle. And for um, uh, in matriarchal societies, the mother is understood, as it is in most societies, <clears throat> to be um, the first, you know, the generous person who first loved us, gave us um, her life out of her body, and then nursed us out of her body, and took care of us uh, with her arms and, and with her body. And so motherhood is understood to be the principles of love, nurturing, and generosity. 
And, of course, now in, in the feminist movement, a lot of people are afraid of that as well. They say, oh, no, we talk about mothers, then I have to be a mother, and then I'm stuck being nothing but a mother, and then I'm not a powerful person in society. But actually, in matriarchal societies, the mothers were powerful people in society. And the mother principle wasn't just for women. It isn't like, oh, women have to be nurturing, loving, and generous, or women get to be nurturing, loving, and generous, but men get to be individuals and, you know, aggressive and strong or things like that. Actually, in a matriarchal society, and this is one of the most important aspects of it, um, everyone is expected to be loving, nurturing, and generous. It's not just for girls. It's for boys, too. And um, boys would not be rewarded for being aggressive or competitive, neither would girls. And so you have a society where everyone thinks that the most important thing to be in the world is to be loving and generous and sharing. And this is so far from our own culture that it's hard for us to imagine. And that's why um, I think when Heidi brings forward a culture like the Mosul in um, the Himalayas and other cultures in Africa and Latin America that still have aspects of a matriarchal society and it, it enables us to understand that actually another way is possible. And um, Heidi says that um, matriarchal societies um, generally are in the early stages of agriculture and she hopes that we can reestablish some of the same principles you know, in our cultures as well. But generally they're agricultural societies and um, they have not private farms, but uh, land held in common. So if you were born in one of these societies, um, you would be born into your maternal clan and you'd have your mother and your aunts and your grandmothers and your great aunts all living together in a a communal not necessarily in the same house, um, but um, uh, owning the land in common and looking to one another as uh, relatives. If you were a boy born into this society, you would also be born into the society of your mothers and your grandmothers, and you never would have to leave. One of the sad things in our society, really, we don't think of it as sad all the time, but it is sad that we have to leave home and set off on our own. Whereas in a matriarchal society, you stay in your larger clan and you don't have to make it on your own. You get to continue to contribute um, to the clan and the clan continues to contribute to you. And then that way if there's such a thing as a divorce or, you know, your your lover or your husband, if you split up with him, then uh, it isn't, uh, you know, community property state and you have to give up half of all your assets. Right, and um, we, uh, one of the things uh, that I find most um, interesting about these societies, and it seems really, really attractive, is that um, the most important relation is not the relationship that involves sex. The most important relationship are the family relationships um, within the larger clan. And people have a lot of sex, apparently. Um, they, uh, they partner off, uh, but they don't get married. And in the Masu, um, when a girl gets of an age um, after her menstruation and a few years after that, when she's ready, her mother will make her a special room and a special dinner, and she invites a boy, young man over, and they don't have to have sex, but if they get along, um, she can invite him to spend the night in the room in her mother's house. And um, if they get along and they keep at it, 
Um, they can stay together their whole lives if they want to. They can stay together for a year. They can stay together for a period of months or a period of years. And when they don't get a, when they don't get along anymore, they simply split. If children were born um, in that time, um, most people would probably know who the father was, but they don't consider that um, the important relationship. The important relationship would, let's say, me or you would be with our brothers. Um, so our bro- my brother would be sort of the parental, male parental figure to my children, and also my cousins uh, would be parental figures. My male cousins would be parental figures to my children. And um, the, child- the cousins would all grow up together in the clan, so you'd have a large extended family, not just because, let's say, your mother had lots of children, but because you were in the same larger family with all your cousins and you never left that family. So the boy would go to another family at night, and then he comes back to have breakfast with his own family and work in his own clan during the daytime. And I think of that in terms of, like, when I was growing up, a lot of the kids in my high school um, got pregnant and um, got married um, very young. And we kind of have this idea that once once you're pregnant, um, and the boy, you know, hopefully marries you, which doesn't always happen, but um, at least that's the expectation. The two go off together and they have to support themselves. I mean, why should young children who are having children have to be, why do we yeah. think that they should be supporting themselves? It's so Pretty much difficult. ingrained in us that we think that anyone who can't do that, there's something wrong with them. And, you know, we call them welfare queens and all kinds of other nasty right, terms. Right, right. But um, if you were in a matriarchal society, well, your your aunts and your uncles and your brothers um, would help you, and everyone would look after the child because children are, are adored and loved, and no one would think that only one person or only two people were responsible for raising a child. It would be the community, the clan community as a whole. And, you know, I'm sure, it, it, you know, those relationships weren't um, uh, ideal all the time. You know, I'm sure, you know, there were family squabbles, uh, you know, and, and sometimes maybe you weren't crazy about your mother, just like so many of us, you know, might have not have been crazy about our mother or our siblings or something. But it sure makes a lot more sense, and it sure is to the benefit of the woman and the children, isn't it? Yes, and... Um, of course, uh, I think a lot of people dismiss this, oh, well, this is just a romantic fantasy. I mean, this is just what you made up in your mind because of what you think you'd like to have. But, um, yeah, I don't think it was always perfect, but it had a lot more checks and balances than our nuclear family does because let's say you didn't get along with your mother, although I think a lot of the reasons we don't get along with our mothers in our society is because women aren't valued and our mothers are often unhappy and then taking their unhappiness out of, on us. Mm-hmm. Um, that whole dynamic probably wouldn't exist, that certainly wouldn't exist like that in a society right. where mothers were valued and women were valued. But um, even, let's say, you didn't, you weren't like your mother. Maybe she was artistic and you were more athletic or something like that. Um, you could have your aunts. Everybody, you'd have your aunts right there. And uh, I think most of us can remember, you know, times when we didn't get along with our mothers and we had an auntie or we had a Grammy who we did get along with. And in this case, they wouldn't live hundreds of miles away or all the way across the country. Um, You'd all be living together. So the day you didn't get along with your mother, you could get along with your aunt could look after you. Yeah. Um, and then you'd have your, uh, you know, you'd have your uncles as well um, to 
you know, male other figures. You wouldn't just have the one father. Um, you'd have all of your mother's brothers and cousins would be the different male figures in your life. So again, you could you wouldn't have to be stuck with just the one um, right. choice. But you right, could move right. around in the family and be closer to one and then closer to another as, as your needs change. And when you say love is free in matriarchal societies, you you meant how you described that uh, you could take lovers and, um, you know, it's a lot looser a relationship. Yeah, it's not based on on the economic um, institution of raising children and, and making money to support a family. That economic part of it is part of the larger clan, which would be your maternal clan, whether you were male or female. And so love is free. You don't, you're not there to make money to, to support your children. Um, you don't have to say, oh, well, wait a minute, if I get pregnant, then he has to look after me, or if she gets pregnant, then I'm stuck, you know, all the things we say in our culture. Because um, that isn't what it's about. It's just about enjoying each other's company and making love. And, right. Um, if you know, the children Except will be the looked after of it. Oh, by the larger clan and the money will be made in the larger clan. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I'm, I'm thinking of the, you know, uh, <laughs> thinking of Rick Santorum and all the Christian heads exploding, you know, the sex for the pleasure of it, you know. Oh, how, yeah. what a horrible, what a horrible concept. <laughs> yeah. You know, and, and there again, okay, let me go back to, you know, uh, you know, how you said the joy of life or the quality of our lives. I mean, sexuality is a very, you know, a very pleasurable thing. I, I just can't imagine our bodies were created the way they are if it was not to enjoy uh, a, a sexual life, you know. But of course, even that is denied us, uh, you know, in this, you know, patriarchal culture. You know, if, if you're a woman. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think um, one of the one of the uh, major um, elements of patriarchy is the control of female sexuality. And the reason for that is because in patriarchy, uh, men feel they need to pass their property on to their sons. And if they don't know for sure that their son is their son, but might be somebody else's son, <laughs> yeah, um, then they feel like they're not, they're not doing what they're meant to do, which is pass their property on to their sons, especially right. their sons. Um, of course, now we're passing it on to sons and daughters, but the principle is still the same, that you have yeah. to know these children are yours, otherwise yeah, you're passing on your property yeah. to some other guy's kids. So right. um, the only way you can be sure of that is to control female sexuality, and that means women have to be restricted. We have to be um, shamed um, in order to keep us from expressing our sexuality freely. So, yes, in that situation, it's hard to enjoy sex. And, and let's not forget, um, you know, another way of denying women you know, sure uh, and controlling the female well, genital mutilation. He's really enjoying it either. He's sorry, I think I'm in. I think I'm. Uh, I, I think we're <laughs> having a, a, a little time delay. Why don't you go ahead and repeat what you said, please, Carol? I'm sorry I interrupted you. Um, uh, I was just saying that a man probably doesn't enjoy sex so much either under those conditions, um, where he feels he has to control a woman. Um, rather than where he can just enjoy himself and 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 her their his body and her body and have a good time right and 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 what I was saying was you know if there's any doubt out there about uh denying women their pleasure and controlling women, I think twofold uh 
you know, reason behind female genital mutilation, you know. Uh, if she is, isn't going to enjoy sex, well, she's not going to fool around on you. And, uh, you know, and that's another form of control and denying her her sexual pleasure as well. Yes, and of course it ties into our American society as well. Um, why are they so concerned about us not getting birth control through um, national health care? Because they don't want us to have the freedom to enjoy sex. <laughs> so what it comes yeah. down to. Um, yeah. And uh, it's it's really amazing to me that, you know, we think we live in a modern world. We think we live in a post-feminist world where everything's been, you know, freed up and settled and everybody's fine. And there's half of the country that really doesn't want women to enjoy their bodies. Well, and, and you know, unless, uh, they're in a, suspect, unless they're in a marital relationship under the thumb of a man. Well, and you know what I suspect too, Carol. And you know, and maybe I'm overthinking this, but you know, um, women put up with a lot in, in in some marriages. You know, men can just about do anything. And if a woman is financially strapped, or you know, she has kids, she has to worry about. She's got to just sort of take it and suck it up. You know, I almost mm-hmm. wonder if these these men are afraid that if women were independent and they could just walk away, well, that really puts them in a position of having to be better men, you know, having to, um, you know, perform at a different level, you know, uh, because maybe there will be less women willing to put up with, you know, their their bad behavior. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I don't know. I, yeah. You know. I, I um, think you're right. So, um, well, well, talking about, you know, love being free, um, I, I didn't realize until I read your notes that uh, Crete was a gift-giving society. Uh, tell us about that. Yeah, uh, one, of the, one of the ways that um, matriarchal societies deal with any type of inequality is um, through gift-giving. And basically what that means is, Let's say um, my family's fields did better than your family's fields because the river diverted or, or you know, somehow we planted the wrong time and our crops um, failed and yours didn't. Well, if you had, you know, if you had more, it wouldn't be just giving it as charity, although, that, you know, there's nothing intrinsically wrong with charity, but it's, if gift-giving is a much more joyous way of thinking about it, that um, so... I have more money or you have more money. We don't even have money probably in these societies because we had more things. We had more food, let's say. I, we have more lambs. We have more uh, greens. And so we throw a party and we invite you and all the other people in the village. And um, then that way we um, share with you and you get fed and we don't hoard up our goods and keep them for uh, you know a rainy day. Whatever we have, we share by throwing a big party and inviting everyone else. And, of course, these parties also occur at weddings or back, well, not when they wouldn't have weddings, but at, let's say, births and um, seasonal festivals and things like that. So people have a way of uh, giving away what they have rather than hoarding it um, and not just giving it away, oh, because I have to, but giving it away in a really fun way. Let's have a party. <laughs> why don't I invite you and why don't we all enjoy this food? Um, so it's it's still part of the joy of life, and this um, cultural attitude is still uh, very much alive in modern Crete, especially in the rural areas. Um, our our group was on a we can, our bus driver wanted us to meet to see his village, 
and um, this is also part of, you know, he wanted to share his, the beauty of his village with us. He didn't want us to leave Crete without knowing his village and, the, and what he loves about Crete. And so he took us there, and we were at a, a little cafeteria, and we were ordering drinks, coffee and um, uh, orange drinks and things like that. And uh, there was an older man sitting in the corner, and pretty soon the owner came up and he said, that man has bought all your drinks. And when you think about it, um, he wasn't a rich man. You could tell by the way he was dressed. So for him to buy all our drinks, I don't know, $15, 15 euros, um, you know, that wasn't a small amount of money. And this is something that people just do. Oh, isn't that nice they've come to our village? Let's, let's treat them. And um, this is uh, something that you experience on a daily basis in Rural Creek, that people want to give away things to you. And it's kind of embarrassing for us, really, because we're not from a gift-giving society. We think, what did I do, do to deserve that? Or should I mm-hmm. take it because maybe I actually have more money than he does, so why should he be paying for me? And it's just a whole way of life that they have. And if you lived in a gift-giving society, then you wouldn't worry about your money so much because you'd realize that someday, you know, if you didn't have money, somebody else would buy the drinks for you and another day when you do have the money you buy the drinks for everyone else and um, that's just a way of life it's not that you give in order to receive or that you give without expecting ever to get anything back those are the two ways we look at it but it's rather much more flowing idea that we all give and we all receive and it goes back to the gift of life um, that nobody made ourselves Nobody would be alive if someone hadn't, someone, mother figures and father figures, male figures and female figures hadn't given to us. And therefore, we just keep giving. And um, there's flow of life. And that's part of the grace of life, which also I think is very much related to the joy in life, that as we give, we enjoy giving, we enjoy the community, we enjoy sharing. It's much more fun to share than it is to, um, to keep. No, so there's I don't know. My mother told me scarcity. that. Your mother probably told you that. I never believed it. <laughs> I didn't really believe it. I thought, no, it's much more fun to keep my things. <laughs> I still have so, that. So attitude there's not that much ingrained in me, but it's it's so refreshing to see someone that doesn't have that attitude. Yeah. Yeah. And to imagine how life could be very different. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And that's one absolutely. of the things we, we experience on the Goddess Pilgrimage in Crete. And uh, one of the things I think that happens for the women who come on the tours is, you know, we kind of had a, a vague idea that things could be different um, or, you know, a strong hope or desire that things could be different. But when you, when you experience something like that, like this man buying our drinks, you really realize things could be different, <laughs> things have been different, things right. are different, and therefore they could be different uh, for us as well. We're talking to Carol Christ, a founding mother in the goddess movement and author of Rebirth of the Goddess, She Who Changes, and Woman's Spirit Rising and Weaving the Visions, books that changed women's lives. And in the spring and fall, she leads goddess pilgrimages to Crete through Ariadne's Institute, 
So, Carol, for our, our final question, because um, uh, I see uh, Matthew is on the switchboard, so if Matthew's listening, Matthew, we will get to you in just a moment. Uh, but, Carol, uh, tell us why when you lead your rituals, uh, your, your, I'm sorry, your pilgrimages to, to Crete, uh, oftentimes you descend into caves where you perform rituals. Um, why, uh, why is that part of the, of, of the activities that you do? Um, because I think that um, ancient people in Crete and elsewhere in the world um, understood the caves to be the womb of Mother Earth, um, the symbolic place where life emerges. And um, we've been taught to fear the dark, and you know, there's a lot of you know monsters in the dark um, and all of that. But actually, the dark. Um, uh, for ancient peoples, the dark was the place where life emerged. And so as you crawl down into a cave or walk down into a cave, you're actually descending into the womb of your Mother Earth. And um, in that darkness, you are not actually afraid. Um, we sit at the bottom of a cave and um, in complete darkness and meditate. And what's really interesting about it is, even though it is completely dark in the bottom of the cave, when you open your eyes, you can actually... Almost, see, you can almost see with your scent, with your body. You feel um, surrounded um, by by the cave and by. Uh, you, you feel kind of like what would it have been like to be in the womb of my mother? And uh, then you, you know, you you're down there. You feel comfortable, um, and you feel at one with yourself and and with the earth and with the other people that are down there with you. And then as you emerge again, you feel a great strength that you've conquered your fear of the dark, you've conquered your fear perhaps of how, how hard would it be to climb into a cave. And there really is a feeling of rebirth that I'm stronger and, and I know that I can do things I never thought I could do. So it's really a powerful experience. And I think so much of our, even in our goddess movement in America, so much of our ritual activity takes place in our houses um, and in our living room sitting on the floor. Um, and I think it's really important that our rituals take place in nature, whether that means on a mountaintop or by a flowing stream or by a spring, um, by a beautiful old tree, um, or in a cave, because uh, really what we're doing is connecting to um, the life force in ourselves and in everything else. And it's much more powerful to do that um, in nature than it is to do it in a living room or a no, church definitely. or any type of a, a building. No, and one of the I things we also do in the caves and in our other rituals in Crete is um, I was talking earlier about the pitchers and, and collecting water. And we pour water and wine and honey from pitchers um, onto altars. And this seems... Uh, maybe seem strange to people because it's not part of Christianity or Judaism, but pouring onto an altar is one of the most powerful ritual gestures that I've ever experienced. And again, it's that flow of life, it's that joy, it's that beauty of, and the pouring is the flow and you're giving back uh, to the earth, to the Great Mother, um, all that she has given to you. And it's not just about pouring it onto the altar. Part of it goes onto the altar and then from there sinks into the earth um, out of doors. But also um, when, you, when you share, uh, bring libations and gifts to an altar, the, 
end result is that you share it. You drink the wine together, you drink the water together, you share the fruits that you've brought, and you have a yeah. feast and a party. It's, it's sort of a so metaphor the joy of for life your certainty again. that there will be abundance, I think. Mm. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, Carol, um, I want to thank you so much for uh, staying up in the middle of the night to be able to talk to my listeners. Uh, It's been a wonderful conversation. And, again, I apologize for that small glitch that uh, had our delay started. (laughs) But uh, I think it's been a wonderful conversation. You've imparted so much. Thank you um, so much knowledge and uh, I've enjoyed uh, chatting with you again and I guess uh, just as we close uh, if you want to tell folks how to get in touch with you one last time Mm -hmm. Uh, we have on Facebook we have Goddess Pilgrimage to Crete with Carol Chris and our website is uh, www.goddessariadne.org A-R-I-A-D-N-E dot org and um, that's for the Goddess Pilgrimage to Crete and there is space still available on our fall tour at the end of September and early October, which is a beautiful time in Greece. Um, the days are getting shorter. It's not so hot. And yet it's still warm enough to be out of doors, swim in the sea, and um, enjoy the great abundance of our Mother Earth. So I hope some of your listeners will join us this fall or next year in Crete because it's really a life-transforming experience that you'll never forget. And I want to thank you very much for having me on your show. It's always wonderful to talk to you. And um, give my greetings to Matthew Fox, who's also a friend, and uh, wish him well on all of his work, too. Well, he is hearing you. And uh, thank you so much, Carol. Thank you for your work in the world. And uh, no doubt we will uh, be in touch in uh, in days ahead. Uh, best of luck okay. on, your thank you, Karen. On, on your new book coming out. Uh, thank you so much. Okay. Good night. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Well, we are crossing the threshold into the second half of the show. As I promised uh, earlier in the intro, uh, we have with us um, Matthew Fox returning to the show. And Matthew has a new book out. Um, Hi, Matthew. Hello, Karen. Good to be with you. Yeah, thank you. Uh, Thank you for coming back. I'm uh, so glad to have you uh, back on the show again, uh, talking about your newest book, a Meister Eckhart, a mystic warrior uh, for our time. Um, I had the opportunity to uh, actually thumb through um, some of the, ch- you know, some of the chapters that I thought uh, my listeners would be most interested in. Um, tell us first, uh, for listeners who don't know the name, who was Meister Eckhart? Well, Meister Eckhart um, lived from 1260 to 1329. He was 13 years old when Rumi died, and he was 17 years old when Thomas Aquinas died. He was a Dominican like Thomas Aquinas, and like I was for 34 years until I was expelled by uh, the Inquisitor Cardinal Ratzinger. And um, he, um, he was the most famous preacher of his day, and he was very much a feminist. He supported the Begin movement, which was a women's movement of the Middle Ages, and the Pope, who actually ended up condemning Eckhart a week after he died, condemning some of his ideas, um, Pope John XXII, he condemned the Begins, the women's movement, 17 different times, which suggests that uh, the condemnation was not sticking, because <laughs> they have to do it 17 different times. 
And when the Pope died, actually there were hundreds of thousands of more Beguines in the world than, than before. And the Beguines were women who were not nuns in a cloister, but were not married either. They lived together in community, and they were mostly lower class, and they, um, they made their living as artisans, craftspeople, and they worked with the poor and with the sick and with the young people. And, and how did um, Eckhart support these women? Well, the the Pope forbade Dominicans or Franciscans to actually work with, with the Beguines because the Beguines were a big threat to the patriarchy because they weren't in marriage and they weren't in nunneries. Independent and, uh, women. Eckhart ignored that that um, warning from the Pope and that threat because the Pope said if they catch the Dominican or Franciscan working with the Beguines, they would expel them from the priesthood, but that didn't keep Eckhart back at all. <clears throat> and um, one of the famous Beguines, Marguerite Perrette, was burned at the stake for heresy in 1310 in Paris. And in 1311, Eckhart uh, went to Paris. It was his third trip to Paris because he taught there uh, in the past and uh, at the university. And what's really interesting is a year after she died, he actually took her book. Her book was, um, uh, we now have copies of her book, and he took ideas from her book and started to preach them, integrate them into his own thinking. So this really shows his courage and his support of the Beguines, namely that instead of allowing her work to die, he actually incorporated it and, uh, and, uh, and used many of her metaphors in some of his own work. So, um, Matthew, do you think he was a supporter of these independent women because he was also a champion of the divine feminine? He looked at women differently in his day? Well, he definitely is a a champion of the divine feminine. um, So I have two chapters on Eckhart and women specifically in this book. One is on the Beguines, and the other is on the divine feminine. It's interesting, you just had a wonderful talk with Carol Crisp because I quote her on the very first page of the Divine mm-hmm. Feminine chapter when I put Eckhart in the room with Adrian Rich, the wonderful feminist poet and essayist from the 70s and 80s. And um, so I used Carol Christ in this chapter along with uh, Adrian Rich. I respect both of them very much. But um, well, uh, and well, and also, I, well, you know, I was I was thumbing through that chapter actually, and um, I, I wanted to read a few things and maybe um, you know have you uh, comment on it. Um, she's, uh, I, I think this is when. Uh, she, let's see if this is where she's talking about um, societal action. But she says. These are her words. She says, but gentleness is active. Gentleness swabs the crusted stump and vents more merciful instruments to touch the wound beyond the wound, does not faint with disgust, will not be driven off, keeps bearing witness calmly against the predator, the parasite. Um, I I honestly hadn't read uh, much uh, of of her before, and... um, uh, she's 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 quite uh, quite interesting. She also talks about uh, sinking and letting go and being at home with um, nothingness. Um, could you explain what do you think her and Eckhart meant by um, those expressions, the sinking and letting go and being at home with nothingness? 
Well, yes, and that passage you just read, a part of a wonderful poem of hers, um, it, to me, that warrior energy, to not faint with disgust and not be driven off when, when you're being active, uh, swabbing the crust of stump and so forth. And so there's this very strong dimension to her um, uh, womanhood and what she's um, uh, speaking about when she's talking about the feminine and um, that it, it leads to action and to real compassion. Yeah, there's strength in the compassion. It's not a it's not a wishy washy weak kind of compassion. Not at all. Not at all. And um, and Eckhart has so much in common with her because Eckhart too was a mystic activist. He uh, he not only supported the Beguines, the women uh, movement in his day, and got in trouble for it. In fact, there was a Beguines who um, who actually uh, wrote down his sermons for us. Without them, we probably wouldn't have most of his work. Uh, but he also, obviously, it was a mutual relationship because he borrowed many metaphors from the Beguines, including that of the Divine Feminine. He says, what does God do all day long? God lies on a maternity bed giving birth. So the very celebration of motherhood and birthing, which um, Adrian Rich uh, equates with the goddess, uh, this is something that's very uh, important to Eckhart. Uh, one scholar has said that he has a whole philosophy of art uh, built into his, his, uh, his work, his theology. So um, the celebration of, of being creative is something that both Eckhart and, and Rich to celebrate. Uh, Rich has a great line about, um, uh, I can find it here, about being, um, uh, uh, yeah, the passion to make and make again with such unmaking reigns. The refusal to be a victim. We have lived with violence so long. But I think that whole refusal to be a victim and to opt for creativity instead of victimhood is, uh, is not only a big part of Adrian Rich's message, but it's a big part of Eckhart's message because he supported not just the women's movement but, but the peasants as well. He, he preached, he was the first um, famous preacher to preach in the German dialect. And in his day, German was not yet a language. It was a, di- a peasant dialect. Oh. And uh, he preached to the peasants in, the, in their language. And uh, this one reason German to this day is as mystical a language as it is, is that Eckhart was really one of the founders of the language. And okay. um, he preached to the peasants, telling them that they're all aristocrats, they're all noble people, because uh, they're born so wonderfully. And uh, they are all other Christs. That was a big part of his message, that all, all beings are other Christs, or if you prefer the language, Buddha nature, but he didn't use that language, of course. And um, so at his trial, and we discovered the transcripts of his trial in the 19th century, uh, that was one of the accusations against him. Why are you preaching to the poor in their own language, telling them that they're other Christs and they're aristocrats and they're noble people? This confuses them. <laughs> and Eckhart did not apologize. He said, uh, the, the poor need to learn. If, if they do not, they will never know how to live or why to die. Ten years after he said that, the peasant wars broke out in Germany, and tens mm. of thousands of peasants were murdered in this class war. So Eckhart was very sensitive and aware of what was going on politically between the haves and the have-nots. The gap was growing in his day, as ours. And he spoke out. He, he took... a prophetic stances and uh, 
So he had that warrior energy that uh, Adrian Rich also uh, countenances. Well, you know, uh, some of the other phrases that jumped out at me um, was creativity is empowerment. Um, and, and it's creativity, and I'm you know, sort of paraphrasing now. Um, there was a, a, a little section that talked about how it's creativity that would defeat patriarchy. You know, I, I think, um, you know, when we think of the word creativity, I think we often think of artists and, you know, art and words, and, um, and maybe that's it. But I think maybe they're talking about something a little bit beyond, aren't they? They're talking more about crea- creative as in um, creating life, and, um, you know, you, you can probably better explain it. Definitely creating life and also um, moral imagination, you know, imagining a different educational system, one that uh, brings in the, the, the feminine wisdom and that, that educates for wisdom and not just for knowledge, imagining a different economic system, one that works for everyone on the planet and not just the two-legged ones, but also for the forest and the soil and the oceans and, uh, and the four-legged ones. But we're capable of reinventing education like that with imagination and creativity. But, um, and time is running out for us. But we are capable of it. People like David Gordon have been working on that for decades. But the media doesn't uh, really call on him. And, and unfortunately, our government does not call on people like that. We want to do more than just put a Band-Aid on the, on the Wall Street system. Right. The creativity of how to live an ecologically uh, balanced life, you know, um, uh, so that future generations will inherit a planet that's both healthy and beautiful and still full of the diversity that, uh, that we can still experience. So, yes, um, creativity is, is uh, so much at the heart of, uh, I think, a, a living spirituality and Eckhart um, is right in the in the center and and is part of recovering the the sense of the divine mother and the the, the sacred feminine and, and well, Adrian and, Rich underscores when she talks well, about well what I'm thinking about too is you know this uh, it, well, sort of just to punctuate what you said you know what we accept as normal is just crazy, you know, and that we, so many people don't have the imagination uh, to even think that uh, anything could be different. But this, um, this idea of, of mothering, uh, I, th- there's this other passage I think um, sort of hits on it. I think it's actually Jong's, uh, Erica Jong's comments, though, uh, talking about the ghostly woman in all men is crucial. Um, uh, Erica Jong, I, I think, is saying here, uh, Rich is alarmed not only by the outward signs of discrimination against women in our patriarchal culture, but also by the way this culture suppresses the nurturant qualities in men and children and in societal institutions. Her feminism is far more radical and far-reaching than equal pay for equal work or the establishment of 50-50 marriages. It envisions a world in which empathy, mothering, a concern for the quality of life, a connection with the natural and the extrasensory order will not be relegated to women who have no power to implement these concerns on a practical level, but will be encouraged in the society at large. She's not talking about discrimination against women, but about discrimination against the feminine. 
So exactly. really, this idea of create of creativity is to you know have the courage to imagine that men would become more this idea that men would become more feminine, that men would become mothers, nurturers. And and um, Eckhart talks that way too. He says, um, "I once had a dream. Even though I'm a man, I dreamt I was pregnant, pregnant with nothingness, and out of this nothingness, God was born." So he he talks about all of us being mothers of God, and um, uh, so it's about bringing in yes the nurturing qualities of women and of men, as um, as uh, Erica Young and Adrian Rich uh, talk about it. And um, uh, he says the feminine by the feminine, I mean the nurturing qualities in all people, whatever their sex. That's um, Young commenting on Adrian Rich. So definitely we talk about bringing the divine feminine back to men as well as women. The goddess right. is part of um, the men's psyche and soul as well as women. And uh, <clears throat> it was interesting hearing Carol Christ talk about the rituals in the cave. Uh, last week I was at a Sundance, and of course uh, a, a, uh, a sweat lodge is very much a return to the mother, a return to the cave. And it's uh, just like she said, you come out of it feeling reborn. And, of course, this is a big part of, of men's rituals as well as women in the Lakota and other Native American traditions. So the, the whole idea that, yes, men, too, have to get in touch with the, the mother within them and, and Mother Earth. And this will create a saner situation. Like you said, it, it, things are so crazy. We're spending $39,000 a second, by we I mean our human species, on weapons today, $39,000 a second. Now, what could we be spending the money on instead of weapons and war, you see? And and that's where imagination kicks in, doesn't it? And then yeah. what do we do to shift shift the values and, and get sane again, as you said, to move from crazy to to real and to tame that reptilian brain that um, so often wants to take over and uh, to bring in the mammal brain, which is the brain of compassion and uh, and kinship. And uh, it, it needs to, to kind of uh, uh, be invited in because the reptilian brain uh, takes over so readily. Right. Well, and, and I've started to get the quotes mixed up now, but it was either Eckhart or Adrian Rich who said, patriarchy is the unmothered world. Mm, yes, that's, that's Adrian Rich. And, uh, and she talks about our savagely... Um, uh, masculine and and unmothered world. So that's right. That we have to bring that sense of the mother, and I would say the divine mother, the sacred feminine, uh, back in consciousness. And the amazing thing is that Eckhart had this in a very explicit way in his time, and this surely has something to do with with his condemnation too. <laughs> Yeah. Well, and one other thing about the mothering idea, you know, we we started to, you know, we, we just briefly touched on it with Carol. Uh, it, it's so funny how these conversations are in parallel, but um, it, it but we didn't really, you know, go there. But it's gotten to be, you know, even in the, in the feminist circles, you know, talking about women as mothers, in a way it's a little bit taboo because, you know, women are still struggling to break the glass ceiling. They're still struggling for equal pay. And it's almost as if when you try to bring these ideas about the power of mothering 
into the conversation, they, you know, they sort of want to gag you, but I think it's because they don't really understand the full potency of what we're talking about when we're talking about mothering, because we're not really talking necessarily about staying home and having children. We're talking about a state of mind. That's right. We're talking about an archetype. And, yeah. Um, yeah. Adrian Rich wrote a prose book called Of Woman Born, and I can't recommend it enough. It is about the history of mother of motherhood, and and she sees it in this broad way, in this analogous or if you will archetypal way, and uh, it's a wonderful, wonderful book. It's very profound. And of woman born by Adrian Rich, and it's exactly what you say. We're not just talking about the literal motherhood, but about the powers of nurturing, of um, uh, healing, of uh, being with. And uh, all these, these experiences that certainly mothers and fathers can have with their children, but it goes far beyond just literal parenting. It's about right. how we mother the earth. And, and uh, of course, the relationships we have with animals and plants are also right. uh, invite this mothering quality out of us, whether we're men or women. And it's interesting, you know, Adrian Rich herself had two sons. And... Um, she was once asked, what does she most want for her sons? And she said, what I most want for my sons is that they grow up to be as courageous as women. And I thought that was a very interesting statement, especially because yeah, I'm a man. Yeah, I read that too. She said, uh, and she said, I would wish them to do this not for me or for other women, but for themselves and for the sake of life on the planet. Wow, I'm, I, you know, I'm going to have to read more about her. I, I honestly have, have did not make the time, but I think I will. Um, but, but getting back to Eckhart, um, you speak of shamanism and Eckhart and Jesus, uh, yes. you know, sort of all in the same breath there? <laughs> yes, uh, I have a chapter on Eckhart as shaman, and his, uh, I put him in the room with Black Elk. You see, in this book, I try to put Eckhart in a room with 20th century thinkers and activists, so Adrian Rich is certainly one, and um, Thich Nhat Hanh in a chapter on Buddhism, and Kumar Swami in a chapter on Hinduism, because this was so uncanny about Eckhart, that he speaks to, in such depth that Buddhists um, call him Buddhist, and Sufis call him Sufi, and, and Hindus call him Hindu, and I'm also proposing that uh, I put him in the room with Black Elk, that he has a lot in common with the shamanistic traditions, too. Uh, for one thing, he celebrates the wisdom of, of animals and how we are equal to animals uh, insofar as we, we both have life, and this does not make us superior to them, but equal to them, as he says. And he also praises what he calls the pagans. He says, um, God loves all creatures equally and fills them with his being. We find this attitude among the pagans, people who came to this sense of love-filled equanimity through the knowing faculties given them by their basic human nature. It is a pagan teacher who tells us that a human being is an animal which is naturally gentle. So this is very rare to see a Christian theologian from the Middle Ages praise the wisdom of uh, so-called pagan uh, or indigenous peoples. And um, uh, there's much that that Eckhart shares in common with Black Elk. For example, Black Elk celebrates the, the, the roundness of the universe, the roundness of the drum that represents the whole universe. And uh, he goes on and says, you know, everything in nature is round, like a bird's nest or the circle 
of, of a community, or even the sun rising and setting, you know, that everything in nature is round. And Eckhart uh, echoes this. He says, being is a circle, forgot it, the circle of the world, circle filled with the spirit of the Lord. And so there are a lot of these archetypes, again, these metaphors that Eckhart shares in common with uh, deep indigenous wisdom, such as that of, of Black Elk. Wow. A man ahead of his time. Um, so, well, like Hildegard von Bingen, you know, she had these visions. And uh, did, was that part of his, uh, I, I mean, was there anything like that with with Eckhart as well? He, he was not, no, he did not have the kind of visions and he didn't do the kind of painting that Hildegard did. Uh, but they were both were mystics who had a lot in common and they both were activists as well. They were both warriors for sure taking on corruption in the church and in society. But Eckhart's um, uh, uh, experience was not so much uh, visual imagery or even musical imagery. Hildegard, of course, was a genius in her uh, composing of music as well. But Eckhart's genius, I think, was, was more poetic. It was in his speaking. Although Hildegard herself was a poet as well. But, of course, Hild- Eckhart, by, you might say by his, his training, uh, he was a member of the Order of Preachers. He preached a lot. And so the preaching, he took advantage. He invented, I think, a whole new way to preach, where he, he uh, told stories and he brought in uh, challenging concepts and he, he changed the, the basic theology from talking about uh, Jesus who is Christ to talking about every being that is Christ. He says every being wants to express uh, God and reveal God and is gladly doing its best. Every stone, for example, he said, is, is revealing something of God. He said, every creature is a book about God. And, and he said, if I spent enough time with a caterpillar, I'd never have to prepare a sermon because one caterpillar is so full of God. So um, Eckhart was, you might say, more in the world than Hildegard. So Hildegard was in a monastery her whole life, although she was very active. But Eckhart was more uh, interacting with people on a daily basis. Uh, he was not in a monastic setting. Uh, he was much, uh, the Dominican order was more active out of the monastery with people, whether at the university eventually or later in his life with the Beguines, uh, interacting with these, these women in their, um, in their, their communities. Um, you draw some comparisons between what uh, medical doctor Larry Dosey and you and Mike Hart all, uh, uh, I mean Eckhart, all believe, and that's that uh, humanity has to move into the psycho-spiritual dimension. What, what, do you, what do you mean, what did he mean by that? Well, it's interesting. Uh, Larry Dossi actually wrote me a note and said he has a whole section in his library on Meister Eckhart, that Meister Eckhart's been very, very important to him. Of course, Larry Dossi is a doctor who's done a lot of work on healing and prayer in subjects like that. But I like what he said about this book. In fact, I quoted it in Silicon Valley a few weeks ago uh, when I'd just gotten it, because he says, whether our species has a future on Earth does not depend on the development of more gee whiz technologies but on whether we're willing to move into the psycho-spiritual dimension proclaimed by Eckhart and elucidated by Matthew Fox. So um, uh, I think he's right. You know, because we've improved information, highways, and communication doesn't mean that we've become better people yet. Uh, we have to go into our, our souls as human beings, into our communities, 
into our our, um, our our fears and our joys and our creativity, as we talked about, and our passion for compassion and justice. We have to stir it up. We have to seek the truth. And this is why someone like Eckhart is so important in our time, because he reaches out, as I said earlier, to so many traditions, including the feminist tradition. He, 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 can speak, he speaks their language. And the result is that he invites all of us to go deeper and to look uh, more at ourselves and at our culture. He says, for example, um, God is the denial of denial. So if you look at how many people are stuck in denial today, say about climate change, for example, what's really happening on the planet to the animals and the oceans and everything, Eckhart would say, you know, until you can cut through that denial, uh, the spirit cannot flow again. And so, he, and so he says, God is the denial of denial. He also says, I pray God to rid me of God. He has these wonderful one-liners <laughs> that really get you to think. And uh, I think a lot of athe- people who call themselves atheists uh, would uh, get on board with that, that one observation from Eckhart, I pray God to rid me of God. You know, what <laughs> gods are we worshiping? And uh, what more healthy uh, God could we be worshiping? Well, and he was a fan of, uh, 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 a, 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 you know, an interfaith way of being in the world. Absolutely. Um, that's what's so remarkable that he, uh, for one thing, um, he quotes Avicenna over 13 times in his sermons. Avicenna is a Muslim philosopher who lived 200 years before Eckhart, and he gives Avicenna complete credit for this phrase, the spark of the soul. The spark of the soul was very important to Eckhart, as it was to Avicenna, and to Rumi as well, the, well, the Sufi uh, mystic. And um, but Eckhart acknowledges that he got this from uh, the Muslim philosopher. And uh, it really is striking to see this uh, recognition of wisdom uh, that Eckhart sensed in the indigenous traditions, in Islam, in, in Judaism too. Uh, Judaism talks about the sparks uh, of creation and uh, sparks of the soul too. So Eckhart was very ecumenical. Um, in his day, strikingly so. And well, yet, and, you know, it seems like the more we look, the more we find the divine feminine. But for listeners who might not know, I mean, there's even the divine feminine in Sufism. I mean, there's a lot of quotes by Rumi about, um, uh, you know, him embracing the divine feminine as well. Well, that's right. And again, it's the mystics who, who taste uh, the divine feminine and the sacred masculine. And, um, yeah, the, those who are living more at the level of institutional religion often see this as a as a big a breakthrough or a big obstacle or a big threat. But those who, whose lives are really about tasting the divine, they uh, there's, there tends to be a, a, a consensus that that wisdom, who is in fact is feminine in Hebrew and in most languages around the world, that wisdom is feminine, and so to to drink wisdom and to serve wisdom is to find that balance between the masculine and the feminine again. And the patriarchy yeah. does not deliver wisdom. It only delivers knowledge, which is raw power. Yeah. I, I, you know, you think about, well, and, and that sort of just goes right over the head of so many people. You know, they're into defending their institutionalized faith and they're missing sort of the universal truths. They're missing the wisdom. Exactly, and it's a pity. 
but it's also dangerous. We just can't yeah. afford to uh, put wisdom on the sidelines any longer. And this, is, this applies to education as well. It's not just a religious issue because true education would, would balance and would ed- train both the left hemisphere and the right hemisphere and would train all the chakras and not just the head chakras. And um, wisdom requires the right brain and what Einstein called intuition. Uh, he says values come from intuition, not from the intellect. He says do not overvalue the intellect. Well, a patriarchal culture does overvalue the intellect. And this yeah. is the reason where so many kids are dropping out of school, especially inner city kids, because they're bored, because they're only being asked to take exams and not to bring forth the wisdom that's in them, which is exactly what happens with creativity. So the creativity is missing in so many schools today, and with that, wisdom goes out the door. Right. I was having a conversation with Ann Baring recently, and she was talking about how, um, you know, she sees the divine masculine as uh, our cognitive brain, you know, what we know in the moment. But that doesn't advance any unless you let the sacred feminine in, which is intuition, inspiration, creativity. You know, one needs the other, uh, you, know, for, uh, you know, for both to thrive. Absolutely. You know, I wrote a book on the sacred masculine two years ago, and uh, it ends with two chapters on the sacred marriage of the divine feminine and the sacred masculine. But what I did was I, I, I dug up ten archetypes of healthy sacred masculine, including the green man, the blue man, father sky, uh, spiritual warrior, hunter-gatherer, fatherhood, and so forth. And um, uh, I like to do workshops with men and women to bring the sacred masculine alive again because... Uh, this is an issue for women, too. Just as a goddess uh, needs to be part of the, of the man's psyche, so the sacred masculine needs to be part of the woman's psyche. And if we're walking around with a, a toxic masculinity in us, which we are, I think, thanks to our patriarchal culture, then women are suffering from this, too. And sure. I've noticed when I've done workshops with men and women that uh, both men and women get really excited about kind of liberating the sacred masculine that they carry inside themselves and standing up to the toxic masculine. So right. I think this is a big part of the women's movement to encourage the uh, exploration of the sacred masculine along with the divine feminine. Yeah, because, I, I mean, there's so many people out there that think, you know, as we try to birth the sacred feminine, we're trying to squash the divine masculine, and uh, so many of us aren't. You know, we're just really looking for balance because one needs the other. You know, we, it, it, we can't have one or the other. Exactly. Uh, my first response to my book on that called The Hidden Spirituality of Men, Ten Metaphors to Awaken the Sacred Masculine came from a woman, and she wrote me and she said, in my library at home, I have over 200 books on the goddess, not a single book on the sacred masculine. And she said, I have two teenage sons. She said, till I read your book, I didn't realize how much men have suffered under patriarch. But, uh, and I don't apologize for the last 40 years of my life, she said, pursuing womanhood and the goddess. But I, I now realize that the next step is what you're talking about. We also have to uh, rehabilitate the sacred masculine and uh, stand up to false versions of masculinity that our culture is feeding our, our kids, and especially our boys. Yeah. 
Yeah, I mean, I was given a talk at the Goddess Temple recently on forgiveness, you know, and I said, you know, um, at some point we have to forgive the patriarchy, you know, we have to forgive and, you know, turn that lump of coal, you know, into a diamond, and that diamond can really be the sacred masculine. Um, and I, I, I do think more of us have to talk about that because we've been so busy bashing the patriarchy uh, because, it, you know, it, it really sort of deserves it. But, uh, you know, something good can really be born from that. Absolutely. And, and men, especially young men, have to hear this. You know, they, they, they can't just hear the, the shadow side of being masculine or male. They have to hear the, the noble side as well. There was a Native American came to me at a conference once, and um, he said, I work in prisons with men. For 12 years I've worked in prison. He said, men in prison tend to project on others. And he said, it's almost impossible to, let them, to get them to look inside and find the nobility inside themselves. He said, your book on the sacred master is the first book I've used that got them to look inside. Those, those um, archetypes you talk about, green man, blue man, a father's guy and all that, it gets them to look inside and to find the nobility inside. I was very moved by that exchange, and especially that phrase, the nobility inside. We all need right. to find the nobility inside. Eckhart was talking about that. As I say, he gave whole sermons on how we're all nobles and all uh, beautiful and born of the, of the divine and so forth. So um, uh, I was very struck by what, what he said, that the, it's very important to help men to find the nobility inside. Otherwise, they get nothing but... Uh, bad news, or they just refuse to look inside at all, in which case they become bad news. Well, and, and I think, you know, uh, you know, as bad as women have had it, you know, men have it bad too, because there aren't many, um, you know, with the exception of your book, you know, it should be like required reading for, for, all, for all men, but those who don't have access to that sort of information, it's like, so what, you know, they don't know what alternatives there are. You know, uh, there. Who who do they emulate? You know, um, it, so so yeah. I mean, they they need new role models as well. Absolutely. And what we have instead is is really kind of the reptilian brain version of masculinity. That is, that you're number one. That you conquer others. That you're you're number one in in sports or something like that. That's the right. message culture gives, and it's not a healthy message. Uh, it, yeah. It, or, it's, or, or we tell them to be, you know, to embrace their feminine side, which mm-hmm. is great, but they still need other role models, uh, you know, healthier male archetypes as well. Absolutely, absolutely. Develop the positive side of the masculine. And women, too, women, too, to um, uh, be able to carry the green man or the green woman in themselves or the blue man or the, or the, the, uh, the sense of uh, Father Sky. The, right. the marriage of sky and earth is what we seek. Uh, or one marriage that I propose in that book is the marriage of the black Madonna and the green man. I think that would be a very powerful uh, symbol in our time about resurrecting uh, Mother Earth and, and defending her. Because uh, that's right. what the man does. He's a warrior on behalf of Earth. Say the name of that book again, Matthew. called The Hidden Spirituality of Men, Ten Metaphors for Awakening the Sacred Masculine. Okay. And uh, just to, you know, for us to come full circle here and close on Meister Eckhart, how did, how did he end his days? I mean, he, he didn't end up in a prison somewhere, did he? Well, actually, he did. He went he to did. Avignon, where the Pope was living at the time, Avignon, France. 
and they had a trial for him. And um, uh, they eventually condemned some of his work a week after he died, but he actually died uh, in, uh, on that property. It was like a prison. Uh, he couldn't leave uh, where they, um, where they uh, had his trial. And it's, uh, I've been to the place, and you know, it's quite it's a very dark place. The SS used the same building that the Pope lived in when they uh, were, were living in France, um, in Avignon, during the Second World War. So there's a very dark energy there. Um, so it is a, kind of a sad story. And, of course, because he was condemned, Eckhart kind of, his work went kind of underground. But now, I think, I think we're ready for him now, to be honest. He was so ahead of his time. I think that uh, that's what makes this book so exciting, I think, that Eckhart has so much to say to us today when, for the first time in history, really, we're able to draw from the wisdom of so many religious traditions around the world. And, uh, and here's Eckhart, who, who's, um, who's been uh, called a Buddhist by Dr. Suzuki, Japanese Buddhist, been called a Sufi by Sufis, he's called a Hindu by Hindus. Kumar Swami, the Hindu scholar, says that Eckhart, reading Eckhart is like reading the Upanishad. Well, that's an incredible compliment from a Hindu. So right. Eckhart is unique, and um, and of course, and including of course his openness to the divine feminine. So, so Matthew, he just died of natural causes. He did. He was about sixty-nine years old. Yeah, he was not tortured or anything to death, but he he did die there. And then a week after he died, they they came out with the, uh, some some attacks on his ideas. And scholars agree these were political attacks, as so much heresy hunting is, uh, that they're really not, uh, they don't hold water uh, theologically. So was he, um, well, obviously, I mean, did, in his day, aside from, you know, people like the Beguines, who, you know, he obviously had a good relationship with, I mean, uh, did he, I, I, recognition, I guess that's where I'm going, um, did he ever have recognition for his work in his lifetime, okay. or is that only happening now? No, no, he had, in his day, he had it. He was the most popular preacher in Europe, the most famous preacher in Europe. Because he was an intellectual, but he chose to, as I said earlier, preach in the dialect of the peasant, German, although he, he also did some uh, writing and preaching in Latin. But, um, uh, and he chose to work with the Biggins. So he was very um, visible in his day, and that's one reason they had the trial against him. They had a trial in Cologne at first, and he won that trial. Then there was a trial in, in uh, Avignon. Um, also, this is something he did. In his day, they were building the Cologne Cathedral, which still exists. It's, very, it's kind of a gingerbread Gothic building. And it was about half-finished. And he got up in this new uh, half-finished building, and he said, the only temple that counts is the temple of the human soul. And he went on from there, and he talked about the merchant mentality that is taking over religion and taking over um, uh, spirituality. He said, some people look on God like they do a cow, uh, for the cheese and the, and the milk they can get from it. Um, so here you can imagine his, his saying in this half-finished building uh, with bishops and bankers and the others so proud of their, their construct, he was saying the only thing temple that counts is the temple in the human soul. And he picked the passage about Jesus overturning uh, the, the money lenders in the temple. 
so he did not endear himself to the uh, powers that be in Cologne, and that had a lot to do with their calling a trial again. I bet, I bet. Yeah, he was saying you are all irrelevant. People don't need you to know God. <laughs> well, yes, and he was saying exactly, and he said uh, you don't, uh, the, the relationship with God is not a quid pro quo. Uh, you have to go deeper than that. And, uh, yeah. Deeper than the merchant. But is that where he, you know, he, he and so many of the mystics start talking about the nothingness, the, the void, the letting go, that's where you find God? Yes, and this is a, a deep part. Carol Chris points that out in her wonderful book on women's spirituality. In her summary chapter, she says the number one thing that all these women writers talk about is the experience of nothingness. And Eckhart also talks about that. And also Adrian Rich. She has a marvelous poem about a friend who died um, young with cancer, but she, and she says you belong to, to your neo-Protestant tribe um, uh, denied the void and... Um, can't talk about the void except as a fashionable concept at a cocktail party. But um, Eckhart and the great mystics and Carol Chris too talk about the value of nothingness and we taste nothingness and that's part of waking up it, and it's part of the dark night of the soul. I think it can be said that our species today is in a dark night of our species and there's great wisdom to be learned from the darkness and from nothingness and Eckhart is a champion of that. And also from silence and Adrian Rich is very good on that. She has a wonderful poem about what she calls the technology of silence, and about silence is not an absence. Silence is a very powerful force. And, of course, that's a Buddhist element in Eckhart. The whole idea of mindfulness and silence is, is a very Buddhist concept, and Eckhart is filled with Buddhist concepts. And I wonder if um, maybe intuitively we know that, and that's why so many people stay busy, and the TV is always on. It's almost as if they're afraid to go there. I think you're 100% right. And the culture's afraid to go there. And so the culture keeps playing Muzak in our elevators and buses and everything else. They don't want us going there. You're right. I think you're right. That intuitively, deep down, we know that silence is good for us, but it also can raise big questions. And so we'd rather stay at the surface and be, be busy minded instead of emptied and uh, tasting the, the depths of the silence. Yeah. But that card is very strong in the importance of silence, how, how the, God speaks only to a silent, to the silent soul. So, so um, Michael, for someone who maybe is just hearing this concept for the first time, um, how do, what's the best things to read to learn about the nothingness, the void, the silence, you know, how to go there and meet God? Well, I think um, this book which I about of mine, The Meister Eckhart Mystic Warrior for Our Times, is very good. I have a chapter on the apophatic divinity. This is a chapter on Thich Nhat Hanh meeting Meister Eckhart. So it's Buddhism. And Thich Nhat Hanh is very strong in the apophatic divinity. And the apophatic divinity is a god of darkness. And Eckhart says uh, God is super essential darkness that has no name, and will never be given a name. So this is a path of uh, silence and of darkness and of not naming God, of, of projecting onto divinity. So I, I go some depth in that chapter using um, Thich Nhat Hanh as well, because Thich Nhat Hanh talks at length about the apophatic divinity. He says when Christians rediscover uh, this side to divinity, Christianity will, will rediscover its real treasures and will be reborn. 
So I think um, that is part of the attraction of Buddhism today, that um, it takes you into a place of silence and, and gives you uh, techniques to get, get there. But Eckhart, too, was very much about uh, honoring the silence. And, and he says, uh, how should you love God? Love God uh, mindlessly. Stay there without mind. And love God as a not God, a not person, a not thing. And uh, oneness, separate from all tunas. So this language is very, very Buddhist. And yet Eckhart never met a Buddhist in his life. <laughs> he got to this truth by plumbing his own soul and his own tradition. And yet he found truths that Buddhists have also um, discovered and have named uh, very well. Right. Well, we are talking to uh, Matthew Fox, author of 30 books, uh, instrumental teacher and scholar in the revival of Western mysticism, particularly the work of Hildegard von Bingen, Meister Eckhart, Thomas Aquinas. Uh, Matthew teaches and speaks widely and lives in Oakland, California. And we've been discussing his newest book, Meister Eckhart, A Mystic Warrior for Our Times. Uh, and you can find him at matthewfox.org. Matthew, thank you so very much uh, for being on the show tonight and introducing us uh, to Meister Eckhart. Thank you, Karen, and thank you for having a show like this. It's very important. We well, it's it's been fun. Um, good luck with the new book, and um, I'll be in touch with you soon about the anthology that's coming out in November that your essay's in. Oh, great. Okay, thank you, Karen. Bye now. You're welcome. Good night. Well, listeners, I'm sure you enjoyed the wonderful show uh, with Carol Christ and uh, Matthew Fox. And uh, I, I, I'm always happy when the two guests seem to come on and talk about similar subjects and sort of have a parallel track when, you know, I really don't plan it that way. It just kind of happens. So uh, stay with me for just a minute. Uh, I have to do some business here, and then I have some things to tell you before I say goodnight. The psychic state of the collective unconscious, which is that consciousness of the planet. It's called the chthonic mind, the mind of the earth. Our ancestors understood that the animal and divine were all connected, they were together, that there wasn't a separation. That's what we are trying to return to, is that sense that our animal nature is divine. It doesn't get in the way of the divine. It gets us closer to it. What's your idea of being fully alive as a human being? Because that's what's really spiritual. Write it down. Start writing your own Bible if you want. That's the sacred. And by that, I just mean sweaty, fun, happy sex. Well, uh, that was Serena Roney Dougal, Ph.D., speaking in Joe Carson's film, Dancing with Gaia. Uh, Dancing with Gaia explores the connection between Earth energy, sacred sexuality, and the goddess as Gaia. It features 15 visionaries who give us tools to feel the life of the planet within ourselves. The DVD comes with a 45-page mini-book and costs just $20. You can get your own copy at Dancing with Gaia.com. So check it out. Uh, it would it would uh, be great to have in your library or for someone um, you know maybe new to some of this or 
uh, they're looking to explore these things uh, from different points of view. Uh, I highly recommend it. And uh, did you know that if you go to my website, to the Goddess Store page, I don't know that I've mentioned it before, but I actually have Sacred Feminine greeting cards. Uh, They're all occasion cards uh, of goddesses and sacred places and sacred objects, and uh, they lend themselves very nicely uh, to different times of the year or different occasions, and uh, they're actually photograph cards. Uh, Yes, so if that sounds like something you might be interested in, uh, you know, you um, have trouble finding decent uh, cards of the sacred feminine, uh, different, uh, you know, for different occasions, um, check out my website, karentake.com, at the Goddess Store page. And while you're there, uh, take advantage of the free meditations uh, that I have there uh, as well. Uh, Let me know what you think, uh, if you like what you see. And uh, next week we will have with us uh, Angie Buchanan. Uh, She's one of my guests along with Paula uh, Famoletti. Uh, I look forward to uh, speaking with those ladies. And we will close tonight uh, with some music and a quote. The quote is from Llewellyn Vaughn Lee. He says, what does it mean to reclaim the feminine? It means to honor our sacred connection to life that is present in every moment. Yes, uh, there's a lot of folks out there talking about the sacred feminine. And uh, to close tonight's show, uh, let's see. I think we'll go with... uh, Hmm... How about Nariana by Diva Haley from her Sacred Alchemy uh, CD? Enjoy, my dear listeners. Thank you for tuning in. I'll be with you again next Wednesday. And please, if you'd like to help me, uh, either buy my new book, Goddess Calling, or go to my uh, website, karentate.com, go to the Goddess Store page, uh, and even a small donation to help keep Voices of the Sacred Feminine on the air, because I pay for airtime here to bring you these wonderful guests. Uh, Please consider uh, making a small contribution to the show. I'd greatly appreciate it. And here is Diva Haley's Nariana. Angels, mother.